Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin our study with Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock. Jeff, you know well the squishiness of how we measure labor dynamics in America. When you dive into this analysis for your market analysis, what will you search for in this shocking report? Well, it is a surprise, and and certainly the market was looking for much weaker numbers. And you know we're all kind of diving into the details here, but the message just appears to be about the pace of returning workers relative to the pace of additional layoffs. And that's a that's a that's a clear positive trend that the opening up in the economy across the various states had been better than what everyone is expecting to see out of this report. The other thing that you're seeing here is is the big distributional shift that we saw in April where we saw a, a kind of a surprising or perverse increase in average hourly earnings. That's because you had the biggest impact from the lower worker wage coming out, you're seeing that reverse. And so that's another testament that people are getting back to work, people are returning to work, and and the people who were harmed the most that really dragged down uh, uh, the the overall payroll reports and, and, and perversely pushed up average hourly earnings, you're seeing that reverse as well. So this is clearly a good sign. Uh, that the markets have kind of been telling you for a while that we're getting back to work. Well, there's no question the markets have been leading to this kind of shock report. But when you look at the social unrest in America, Jeff Rosenberg, is this a surprise and a sense of labor stability for a small part of America that's employable versus everybody else? You mentioned distributions. What's the barbell of our labor economy right now? Well, we've seen that for a while in terms of up until the coronavirus yes. crisis, this had been a labor market that was benefiting the distributional aspects, meaning it was a very tight labor market. And so you saw the biggest gains coming from the lower end of the labor pool. All of that was turned upside down by the coronavirus crisis in that it had a disproportional impact where you can't simply move the job online when you can't move to remote working. That's in many areas of service employment, retail employment, things that you had to shut down for coronavirus had the biggest impact. And that, that turned on its head what had been a very strong labor market. I think what we see coming out of this report is really, you know, some signs that as we return, we might, we're, we're, we're certainly going to ease the pressure relative to the extreme of no work at all. The question will remain, what comes back? How far back do we get and how long does it take? And despite the optimism of the markets and today, there's still the case here that we have had some permanent losses of employers, some permanent losses that are not going to come back. And that will that will be a little bit of a darker cloud. Today, it'll probably be more of the optimism, but we've got to keep in yeah. mind here that, that we did see some real scarring. Jeff, I just want to sit on this moment for a minute. This is absolutely stunning for all the right reasons. A huge upside surprise that nobody was anywhere near estimating in our survey. What's the risk here now for you, Jeff, then that we extrapolate this out, this improvement, 
this rate of change too far, far too much? Well, you know, you know, the risk is in in my markets, in 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 the bond markets here. We're really at a loss for how to think about what what are the levels of yields, and 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 the issue here on the levels of yields is that it's really about the Fed saying supporting market functioning in 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 face of an epic increase in issuance. And so the supply-demand uncertainty, well, we have more certainty on the amount of supply that's coming. We have less certainty about how much the Fed's going to be willing to support that. And so when you add to this kind of this momentum around growth and increasing yields, it creates a, a huge uh, uncertainty around the, the shape of the curve, the pace of yield curve steepening, what exactly is the yield curve shape that the Fed is going to want to see. We're going to pivot that into that next week when we talk about the FOMC meeting. But the markets are really uh, uh, challenged to figure out what is the right level of yields because it's not driven solely by these economic fundamentals like the payroll report would have done in, in years gone, ba- gone past because we have this historic, well, it's really analogous to World War II history, but, but relative to our modern experiences, a historic change in the Fed's operation with regards to what we're talking about, which is yield curve control. Yeah. And what are the levels around yeah. that? Jeff, uh, we're speaking with Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock. And I should just note right now, we are seeing uh, futures rising substantially. A new leg higher with the S&P futures now up 1.6%. Longer dated yields also ripping higher off this report currently 10-year yields at 0.932%. So people are, can question the accuracy of these numbers, but what you're getting in markets is at first a hesitance and then a pile-on, Jeff, as people expect this to portend good news. Can we just really go over the fact that this does not cohere with the continuing claims and the jobless reports that we're getting out of state and federal agencies over the past few weeks. There is a skepticism uh, that one has to have when looking at these numbers. Can you explain that to us, Jeff? How much confidence can we have that this accurately portrays the picture on the ground? Well, first, one way to sort of ascertain the uncertainty is just look at the spread of market expectations going going into the to the report right so nobody had it on the positive side but even within the negative side you had you know minus two and a half million to minus eight and a half million i mean we are in uncharted territory so when you look at kind of the traditional tools that we use to predict you know the two plus or minus two hundred thousand in the payroll report you know you can you can map those pretty clearly to the high frequency data that you get ahead of the payroll report in this in this case, we're really out of a toolkit to, 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 to know how to do that forecast at all. And so it is possible that the positive number here is reflecting some things in terms of uh, uh, the data, the data calculation. I, I don't have the response rate, at least the April response rate had been in um, in the historical averages. So that probably isn't isn't to blame here. But it's we're, we're really just in uncharted territory for knowing how to address these issues. And so what we're really capturing is 
the inability to forecast what returning to work and what the pace of returning to work is and the distributional aspects that we're talking about, trying to aggregate right. up at one number across state-level impacts that are highly disparate, very hard uh, to, 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 to model that and, and to forecast that. And I think that that's what we're seeing here in terms of the surprise relative to the economic forecast. This, this is why we love to have Jeffrey Rosenberg on, folks. I can't convey to you the importance of the three sentences Jeffrey Rosenberg just stated there. If you're joining us uh, just now, our simulcast worldwide on Bloomberg Television, on Bloomberg Radio, we welcome all of you. I'm not going to give you all the statistics because, as Jeff says, I don't think the statistics here matter. All you need to know is, once again, the market's out front away from the gloom, and these are shocking and difficult statistics, but nowhere near the gloom that was expected before this report. Jeffrey, I want to go into your Carnegie Mellon mathematics there. You've used twice the word distributional. I totally agree with you that good people, and I mean this, folks, good people are trying to take blended, broad, below statistics and aggregate them up to a single reportable unemployment rate. Jeff, even in good conditions, that's impossible. How impossible is that to do right now? Well, it, it, it's particularly challenged right now because you have the um, a, a shock that is outside of anything we've seen. So remember how these forecast models are built. They're, they're built off of historical information. They're, they're built off of models that have some kind of intuition around how normal economic behaviors respond. And, and so you're really cast adrift to try to, to, to try to do that forecast. You're trying to pull in high-frequency data. But again, because of the, 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 the very specific differentiated nature of how we're reopening the economy. Think about what this labor report represents, right? It's, it's total non-farm payroll across the entirety of the U.S., yet look at the differences in how states have reacted. So to really kind of build that model correctly, you'd have to have state-level models filled with state-level data, and, and that just doesn't exist yet. And that's right. part of the challenge and part of the explanation, I think, for, for why you had first such a wide band and how this number has come out side, even that very wide band, to the positive side. I'll tell you, folks, this is what Bloomberg Surveillance is all about, to go from Randall Krosner to David Blanchflower, Tom Perselli, I thought was brilliant, and then just to get lucky and have Jeff Rosenberg with us at this time to really explain the noise around this voluminous wall of statistics. It's going to be fascinating to see how this is vamped by the pro-economists and by the political voices uh, in the coming hours. Plus, <laughs> reading and Tom Keenan. What we're going to do here, because this is totally unfair to Tiffany Wilding, she and every other frontline economist are going to go, folks. And, you know, the media, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, we cite like three statistics. And if we're sophisticated, Paul, we'll cite a fourth. <laughs> They're looking at like 85 statistics, trying to get a matrix of feeling the American labor economy. Uh, Tiffany, I, I really want to shout out the Zero Hedge, who's got a great summary going on right now. With the revisions, job losses have averaged 6.5 million per month over the past three months. I, I mean, is this a point where you take this monthly study 
and you smooth it out to a moving average, do you take it as a one-off that you discard, or do you take it and climb on board optimism? Well, um, I mean, I, I think you have to look at this report as telling you that we could be, you know, the, the probability that we're, you know, we're recovering faster than maybe many people expected um, is, is maybe a higher probability than we saw before. You know, so I think that there's always been a lot of caution around the extent to which people, can, you know, the labor market can kind of efficiently reallocate once people are laid off. Will those people become long-term unemployed? Will they be able to get hired back? I think what this report tells us is that maybe more of those people than we thought and more quickly than we thought will actually be hired back. You know, I think that I think one thing that, you know, that, that does come out of this is, is that some of the things that the programs that the government has implemented, like the payroll protection program, you know, maybe those things are working a lot better than we thought. So that program actually incentivizes businesses to rehire back people, um, you know, so they can get loans from the government that ultimately will become grants. You know, so I think this report suggests that those kinds of policies maybe are, are, are much more impactful than, than maybe many people thought. So, Tiffany, how do you kind of square, I guess what I'm trying to do is kind of square the jobless claims numbers that we've seen over the last, you know, four, five, six weeks with this number we saw today. Is it the moderation of jobless claims? Does that explain the fact that we added two and a half million jobs versus the consensus of losing seven and a half million? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I mean, so I think you have to be a little bit careful about the initial claims numbers, because many people will uh, they'll apply. They might apply more than once. They might get rejected. So those numbers can actually be um, uh, inflated. But if you look at continuing claims, still, we had a pretty big increase in continuing claims. Um, you know, certainly not as much as, as last month. But that actually underscores how how good this report was, because the fact that you know around three million people, if you just look at the state continuing claims numbers, actually lost their jobs. The fact that this number, this number is a net number, it suggests that over three million people had to gain employment, um, you know, to get to get that, you know, the, the total change in employment okay. to, to be positive. Is furlough in your textbooks? I mean, or what we're arguing about here is people that were laid off. They're a statistic. They cr- they created claims, whatever, but business really meant it when they said this new word, furlough. A lot of people were laid off or fired and weren't laid off or fired. They were furloughed. I, I can't spell it, but there it is. <laughs> furloughed. <laughs> Tiffany, what's furlough mean to PIMCO? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And you know, and I think one thing is that the labor the labor department reports and the questions that are asked don't really properly capture furloughs. Um so the, the kind of rules around the surveys are that if you if you weren't paid um, whether you were on furlough or not, but you weren't paid, you're going to be counted as unemployed. So, you know, many of those unemployed workers, you know, could have been on furlough. They could have still been receiving benefits, and they could have, you know, still been very connected to their employers. Um, you know, but they wouldn't yeah. uh, been counted as the unemployed. <clears throat> you know, I think we're seeing we're seeing some of that in, in this report as well. I mean, Paul, I can't tell you how unusual this is. If you're just joining us, folks, Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene trying to piece together the oddest yeah. labor report in my umpteen years of doing this. And, folks, there's been some, you know, real emotion over the years around certain events like September 11th of 2001 and, you know, other moments like the financial crisis, Paul. But this is, I just really want to underscore to people, 
I don't want to hear a lot of certitude right now, Paul. Yeah. I just want to see adults like Tiffany Wilding do the <laughs> the romantic analysis that nobody sees on television. Do the or math radio. exactly right. So, Tiffany, what do you think this report will mean to the Federal Reserve? Well, I mean, obviously, no one wants to overreact to any one report, um, and you ha- and it has to be taken in- into broader context. I mean, the unemployment rate. You know, obviously, surprise consensus. Um, I think the Bloomberg consensus was around 20%. You know, clearly a big surprise with that, but it's still 13%, which is very high historically. Um, so there, there's still a lot of question around the recovery. Um, I, I just think that, you know, the good news is is that maybe we're, you know, the, at least the labor market isn't sinking into the depths than we, than we previously expected. You know, so I think, you know, the, the forecasters include – sorry, go ahead. You know, I don't mean to cut you off, Tiffany, but I'm all riled up here after the week we've had <laughs> in New York. I mean, I know you're out in Newport Beach over a pina colada enjoying the view. <laughs> Tiffany, you, you know, come on. It has been a week of historic unrest. There's a 12-foot-high fence that Attorney Barr has around, you know, the broader White House. Margaret Brennan interviewing Attorney Barr on Face the Nation. You'll hear that on Bloomberg Radio Sunday afternoon. Tiffany, come on. We're not measuring... America. I think we're measuring like jobs at Boeing, jobs at Bloomberg, jobs at PIMCO. Okay, great. Are we capturing the unemployed, the sort of employee? I hate this phrase, Paul. Three, two, one. The gig economy. <laughs> there you go. Are we measuring it, Tiffany? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some question around the extent to which you do measure the Thank economy in, in these surveys. That's absolutely true. And and note that on, on uh, claims, yeah. we've actually seen the pandemic program claims, which were a part of the CARES Act, which were basically geared towards the gig economy because many of them don't, um, you know, they can't get the usual unemployment claims from states, they're not eligible. Those kinds of claims actually shot up quite a bit during the month. You know, I think the household survey actually maybe does a little bit better of a job, although, you know, it's difficult to know how much they capture the gig economy. The household survey does capture that, and the household survey was also pretty good. I mean, there's nothing really that you can... Um, you know, you can say in terms of the surprise, at least, that was bad about this report, the participation rate okay. increased a little bit on the household survey and, and, and payroll uh, or employment also increased quite a bit. Yeah. Terrific work. Tiffany Wild, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with PIMCO uh, this morning. You know, this extraordinary number uh, we saw today out of the jobs, you know, we were talking about consensus, a 20% unemployment rate. The actual number came in about 13.3%, so much, much better than expected. Yeah, help we, us. Paul, yeah, exactly, Tom. Paul, it's a massive victory lap. I mean, Rick and <laughs> Donna and Shultava, they killed it. Now, did they get it to the single point, the decimal point? We expect that from Rick and Donna, but maybe not. They nailed the directional <laughs> call, Paul. They nailed it. And fortunately, we have Yelena Shuletyeva uh, joining us from Bloomberg Economics. Yelena, thanks so much for joining us. You know, just a shocking number this morning. What's your key takeaway here? I'm worried that this, uh, you know, victory lap and uh, better than, you know, expected statistics on payrolls will make authorities think that uh, we the, the crisis is over. And it's not. Look at the wage income growth. And the gap between the trend, the pre-crisis trend, and the income growth uh, after the crisis hit, it's still a significantly wide gap, which needs to be supported by additional income uh, coming from uh, jobless benefits. 
uh, I think that uh, this uh, this numbers will just simply say, okay, uh, everything is fine, everything is fixed. Whereas the additional fiscal measures may be needed in the second half of the year to support that awning gap between wage growth and the pre-crisis trend. Elena, how do, you, how do you square some of these jobless claims numbers that we've seen over the last five, six weeks, which have just been staggeringly bad on the downside with kind of the number we saw today, which two and a half million jobs added? I think uh, a lot of it has to do with this, uh, uh, you know, augmented uh, uh, claims program that, uh, that doesn't cover payroll employees. So a lot of people are still unemployed. And, uh, you know, yes, we did see an improvement in the unemployment rate, but right. it's still uh, double digit, you know, 13.3% is way above the level uh, okay. that we saw during the Great Recession. As you do, Elena, you nail it. Okay, you go right to the mystery here, which is the gig workers, the self-employed, that big plugged hole that, that we have to fill in here. From the data released today, can our listeners easily figure out that hole, that gap of people not counted, the uncountable within this report? I think what we need to look at really going forward to kind of gauge the uh, strength of the recovery is uh, growth in incomes, growth in aggregate hours work. Because if you look at the two months combined, we now have two months of data for the second quarter. Yeah. The uh, aggregate hours, are still declining at 46% annualized, which means the GDP report will still be absolutely uh, terrible. You know, but we will need time. We will need months and months to get back to the level uh, where we were. But Elaine, I know, you know, you were late coming to us because you're on the phone with the president of the United States. (laughs) He's going to get out there, Elena. He's going to be all mental about what a great report this is, as would any other president. I'm not picking on President Trump. What would you say to the president? What would be your advice on getting to the report after this one? I I would point out exactly to what I was uh, saying before, that the wage statistics are still looking very terrible. Yes, you know, we did see a rebound, and it was natural given that, uh, you know, uh, businesses are going back and uh, we are lifting the lockdown measures. But the gap between where we were and the wealth of people before the crisis and right now, these are two different things. So just real quickly, Elena, um, just thinking about this, What's your, when you plug this kind of jobs number into your model, what's your GDP outlook for the remainder of the year? How do you think this is going to play? Good question. So uh, I, I think this, uh, actually this report is still consistent with uh, our projections for a 37% decline in GDP in the second uh, quarter, uh, yeah. but perhaps maybe a slightly better <clears throat> rebound uh, in the third and the, the, the fourth quarter right. of the year. It, was, it will still be a, a tremendous decline uh, in uh, GDP for the right. year as a whole. Elena, congratulations to you and our Bloomberg Economics team. You absolutely nailed the directional life isn't so groomy, gloomy call over the last week or so. You guys just nailed it that it would be a better than a good report. 
Every day we focus on COVID-19. We try and track it with one of the experts in this. Joining us now is Andrew Pekosh, a virologist and Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health professor. Professor Pekosh, thank you so much for joining us. When you look at some of the vaccine trials that we've seen, how are the antibodies and the antibody testing actually developing? Can they be used to make sure that we have a safer vaccine? Yeah, so things are progressing um, at a very nice pace when it comes to some of the vaccine trials. Studies are moving forward into their second phase, which is oftentimes the phase that we really start to get signs of whether vaccines have the potential to be efficacious or, or, or work well in the population. I think in addition to that, there have been a few studies that have started using just antibodies as a therapy. So vaccines induce antibodies. Um, some companies have actually jumped to the fact of giving people those antibodies directly in terms of, uh, uh, of a treatment. And those studies are also moving forward. Um, and have shown some good promise initially. So um, from the side of your immune response, um, there have been, there's been continued good progress um, towards, towards uh, seeing whether or not we have some good uh, future treatments for this. Are we loosening public health restrictions in a good way? Are we able to contact trace people that may fall ill again to make sure that it's contained? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, there are mixed results, um, I would say, when you look across particularly the United States. There are some states that are doing a good job in terms of keeping cases uh, level um, while they're loosening restrictions. Uh, there are a few states where you're starting to see little upticks in terms of the numbers of cases that are there. Um, everything comes down to being um, good about identifying cases and then being able to track those cases so that the people who are uh, coming in contact with those individuals uh, can be identified and isolated. That's the phase that we're moving into now as we try to expand our economy, um, loosen public health restrictions, but still keep the virus down. So states are going to have to be very, very um, proactive, monitor how they're doing in that, and really work towards um, optimizing those contact uh, identification, testing, and contact tracing strategies uh, for these rollouts to be uh, uh, able to be sustained. Will contact tracing really work? Is there a better way that, than just you know, simply reopening the economy and, and actually seeing the number of, of deaths to try and track where it is? Yeah, you know, we're going to have to really change the way that we're uh, approaching um, our our day-in, day-out life, the social distancing, mask wearing, uh, various other things in terms of limiting uh, crowds in places. These are going to be the things that we're going to have to deal with for the next, you know, at, at, at least six months to if not a year or more um, to make sure that we're keeping this virus down and not seeing the surge of cases that so many parts of the country saw, um, you know, this spring uh, when the virus first made its way across the United States. Um, Andrew, what do we know about antibodies? So are antibodies, you know, something that actually protects you against being reinfected? Or for the moment, do these tests only prove that you've had COVID-19? Yeah, so um, it, it, it's another great question. There's two parts to this. We're learning more and more about the antibody responses that are being induced by infection. And there's some good results coming from that, showing that people are generating what we believe are protective responses after infection. Now, the important thing to note, though, is that the tests um, are a bit more limited in what they tell you. Uh, the tests can tell you if you've been infected, um, but they can't tell you if they have these protective antibody levels, at least not the tests that are around right now. 
So one has to be very careful about the antibody testing, uh, which, of course, is increasing across the country as it becomes more available. It tells you if you've been exposed, but it doesn't necessarily tell you at this point in time whether you're protected from reinfection. So does it make sense to, to you know, get tested one time but then also wait for more sophisticated antibody testing? Will, will these come out to actually be able to tell you if you're protected from the virus and for how long? Yeah, I think there will be, there is a, there is a hope that once we really identify what arm of the antibody response is, are, are providing the protection to people, that the tests can then be fine-tuned uh, so that we're asked, answering both of those questions. Have you been exposed and are you protected at the same time? Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to, to, to come up with those tests simply because uh, we have to wait and make sure that the people who've been infected have these immune responses for longer periods of time. Some things can be moved forward quickly. Um, we have to, other things such as understanding if you're still protected from infection six months after uh, you've been infected, um, just takes time, uh, which is kind of the obvious thing there, but it really does take some time for us to really understand the full length of protection that's induced by infection. And how much do we understand about certain communities, you know, and also certain countries um, have been affected more than others? Is it just the spreading of the virus and some of the social distancing put in place, or is there a, a much deeper and concerning uh, response that could be linked to genetics? So um, those are the studies that are still uh, in place. Right now we've got population studies going on. Uh, we certainly know that there are uh, parts of the population that seem to be more susceptible to, to severe disease. Um, separating out socioeconomic factors from genetic factors is something that is um, really a high priority level. Um, we've had a lot of unrest this week in terms of racial tensions, and certainly one of the things that we've noticed in the U.S. is that um, minority populations, urban populations, seem to be um, much more strongly hit by the virus than other populations. Um, we also know the elderly, and in fact, there's many, much data suggesting that men are more susceptible to severe disease um, uh, than the rest of the population. So there are a lot of factors that are coming out from the uh, data these days uh, that merit more investigation. Uh, the U.S. just today is asking for additional demographic information on COVID-19 infected patients so they can really sort of target and understand um, the subpopulations that are being affected uh, by severe disease. So uh, there's still a lot to learn, but the data is coming in and uh, we're collecting the data in ways that are going to allow us to really identify these uh, high-risk populations and get at the reasons why they're at risk. Andrew, really quickly, is the second wave likely over the winter time? Is it, you know, seasonal? Yeah, so uh, it's looking more and more like, um, you know, there is some seasonality to this virus. Um, right now, we're going to continue to see cases. There's so many people that have no immunity to this virus that it's relatively easy for the virus to find people who it can infect right now. Um, once we move back inside, once humidity and temperature drops, um, we expect that there are going to be a surge of cases, very similar to what we saw in, perhaps in the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, where the virus sort of simmered over the summer and then um, uh, caused a strong surge of cases um, in the fall. We hope to be much more prepared for that um, and be yeah. able to deal with that much more better. 
Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Andrew Pekosh there. And be sure to check out VRUS Go on the Bloomberg for the latest information. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.